From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Virtual Edition. We've been doing these Zoom Moneyball episodes since the pandemic hit. We'll keep going. We're going to do this weekly. Got the whole team here. Eric Bradlow's back from Parts Unknown. Shane Jensen in his in his uh, in his Center City home. Adi Weiner out of the main line, fresh off of teaching. Adi's teaching real time. He's doing good work on behalf of Penn and Wharton Moneyball Academy, talking about sports analytics. Adi is is uh, is doing real work right now. While the rest of us, yeah, are it's been around. great fun. Actually, it's hard to call this work to do what you love and uh, talk with you know experts in the field of sports analytics with teams. Um, Tomorrow, having students come in who, who work for teams, they'll be joining us to talk about their experiences. The next day, I got Mike Lopez coming in from, from uh, NFL, and we have the, uh, the big gun for the season is Chaim Bloom is coming on, on Friday. It's from a big the, gun. From it's the Red Sox, gun. the GM of the Red Sox. If we can't in some watch ways, play, it's almost easier for people to kind of pop, you, you know, to have like much these Disney speakers and stuff like yeah. that in our kind of completely online world. So this is a program that Adi has built from scratch where he takes – kids they are under high school students who are, are interested in stats and especially sports analytics and Adi has built it up from nothing until you know and how many how many people do you have this summer Adi well we have 75 for the full three-week program and another 70 for the one-week program and this is in the time when we lost a lot of programs because we had to go to online and um Adi I think of this as even though I know you're interested in sports you really think of it as a vehicle first for teaching statistical it is. thinking and reasoning and execution, right? It is. And the, the nicest thing about it, and I was talking to, uh, to a, a research colleague about the program, and I said, you know, we have a hard time teaching statistics because the first thing you have to do is teach them why. Um, so if it's economics so here at the Wharton School, you teach undergraduates, they might have been admitted to the school to, to study business, but they don't really know about business. So you always have to tell them why. And that's a, an endeavor that sometimes they get or don't get. But when you deal with high school students in sports, they know why. They're, they, they, right. they've got that mm-hmm. down. So yeah. when you teach them the, even the basics for them, it's just, wow, of course, this is, in, this is a solving a problem that I want to know how to solve. And you really get right to the statistics without having to build up the, the context. You're not swimming upstream basically. Yeah. So you had a very interesting guest today um, from the nationals. So this is a longtime friend of the show, friend of yours, former student assistant GM now, is that right? He's assistant GM. He's in charge of analytics and development and a whole bunch of other things. And actually, we got we got great stuff out of him. I, I, I'm give us something. Give us one. Give us one bit. Just one. But give us a bit from Sam's visit. Yeah, I wish you know. So I'll give you one thing that just immediately caught my mind, and I think that it's something that UK would be interested in. So what they do is before every game, they do an analysis of who the hitters are, who the pitcher is, and they position the outfielders. And they give them a way to find their spot. It's a, it's a, it's a counting out, you know, three steps, four steps this way, three steps from some, some mark that they're supposed to memorize. They keep it on a card. So they, they're always whipping it out. You might see that on TV. They're, they're taking out the card and looking. The outfielders And then what they do, and then what they do is they, and this is terrific, right? So the game is played. And then they compare. And then, of course, they don't actually stand in the optimal spot because they're players and it's hard to do and they, they make their own decisions. And they got a few other things on their mind. And they have a few other on. things on their mind. At, after the game, 10 minutes or so after the game, they report to the players how, well they which, did. how far away they were from optimal <laughs> and how much better or worse they would have done if they had been in an optimal position. Oh I got God. two numbers out of it which were interesting. Uh, one is 58 to 42, which is 58% of the time they would have been better off if they had been in the, in the spot that they were told to go to or the optimal spot, yeah. so, hold which, on. Is, I, which means so, that there's a little gap. Give us some sense of where that calculation comes from. You're saying – Yeah, and I mean I'm especially curious about the effect size. I would uh, I'll give you the like effect if size. If they're standing like four feet away from optimal – like on the scale of a single game, how much could they have improved, really? Okay, so he gave me the number, whether we'll stand by it or not. Or uh, so, so essentially, so, so I asked this two-part question. One is, how do they get it, right? So essentially what they do is they build a model for the hit distribution. That's not simple because they do it by pitcher-hitter. Uh, so batting, uh, handedness of the pitcher, handedness of the batter, the different tendencies of the pitcher. You can imagine sure. that's an extremely difficult endeavor. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be able to immediately figure out how to to, to model where the, the spray distribution is. Scotty, what about what about the old, you know, you and I are old time baseball grumpy guys. What yeah. about the old expression? 
Hit them where they ain't. <laughs> exactly. So how do you know, yeah, that, the do you know that, that? How do you know that the hitter's not just going to adjust to where the batter, where the yeah, yeah, is? Yeah. Oh, that's a confounder that's very difficult to try to work around. Um, so, of course, I think that's the old school. I think uh, Ty Cobb would have figured that out. I don't think that today's players are really t- attuned to that kind of thing. Maybe because they, they generally go for you know just hitting it as hard as they can um, every time. Um, but let's. The, you're right, of course. But let's just say that they they essentially what they do is then they. For any for a given spray distribution, I'll call it for lack of a better word, a spray distribution. Any spot that the outfielder stands in induces a um, essentially a probability distribution on an out, and then you can move that around and you can figure out where the the, the expected value is the highest, uh, uh, the expected value of a run is the lowest, outs are highest. So, so Adi, when they tell them something like you're fifty-eight forty-two, you would have been better off where you are 58% of the time, worse off 42% of the time. No, so they don't go to the actual spot. They go to something else. And so what he then tells them is if they had been in the, the, the spot that they were told to, they would have been better off in 58% of the games. And, and what, they, that's, but that but is again, a, but better off by like 1%. Ah, so what it is is he says it's 30 run, hits, hits over the course of the season. To a particular fielder. I think that's over the entire team. Okay. So let's right. figure the outfielder is giving up. Each outfielder is giving up 10 hits over the course of the season due to suboptimal placement, which means that's value. I mean, that's real value. That also shows you the fineness of the margins yeah. in Major League Baseball mm-hmm. these days, you know? I mean, that's a lot of trouble to go to for 10 hits a player of a season. I mean, that's remarkable, really. I believe it, but it's just a good example of how fine the margins are. It's also why you've got to work on 100 different margins <laughs> if they're that small You've got to work on a lot of them to rack up. But if you think about that, if you think about saving 30 hits across the season, um, the average value of it, depending on, obviously, these are not home runs, so they have to be, and they're probably, you know, it's a combination of singles and doubles. Um, you would argue that you're saving, if I just throw it out, I would say at least 10 runs, and so probably maybe even a little bit more. That's a $10 million item. Go from runs to millions. Uh, uh, 10 runs is about a win. It's, it's a win. 10 runs is, is, is a win. And a win is usually valued at about $10 million. Oh, geez. Okay. You know, again, this is where you get into this fascinating discussion because, you know, um, one win may be worth nothing, right? If you have 70 wins, getting your 71st is not a particularly great value. Um, if you have 90 wins, getting the 91 could make a huge difference towards your odds of making the playoffs. So it's actually, you know, True. this is one of those things where your degree of differential and your degree of investment ROI, if you like, could depend on whether you're right by the margin or not. Yeah, absolutely. I guess if, so that was a absolutely fascinating, like hardcore analytics. They also talked about how the players are now leading the way to demanding analytics. Is that right? So they want to know the numbers. They want to be able to work because they see it. They use it. They're using it in training. It's used in college. Yeah. Um, so say how much of that audio is because they are increasingly appreciative and see the returns or how much of it is generational? They've been exposed to it as they've been developed. Uh, Sam, I think, w- indicated that it was generational, that this okay. is what they're this is just part of the world they're in. He says they don't question how they use an iPhone. It's just used. They use Rapsodo and they use these these techniques that they're getting in in development and they expect to see it. Interestingly, one of the things Sam said, he says he's been, cla- you know, the, 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 the administrators make the pitch that they should have them. And it's a hard row. It's a hard hoe. Yeah, road to hoe, I think, is the right way to describe it. Um, and uh, the players <laughs> demand Agricultural reference. Agriculture. Uh, the, players demanded, yeah. the, 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 the players demanded and they get it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As, uh, you know, at, at, at the college level, it's a little different. It's more the, the coaches are asking for funds to get those machines. But the best mm-hmm. funded programs are, are super advanced analytically these days. Guys, before we go any further on the sports side, we've got lots to talk about on the sports side. Let's touch base on, on the coronavirus side. It is the context for all of the sports these days. And um, in some ways, it's felt like it's trending in the wrong direction, both, you know, as a, as a, you know, for the country, but certainly for sports as well. I'm curious over the last week, what's caught your eye in the world of coronavirus? Well, the, the two things that caught my eye in the last couple, I mean, obviously, the number of cases is going up in a huge number of states and parts of the country. Um, the death rate is starting to creep back up again. Um, we're also seeing that a number of states where the rates were going down are going back up again. Um, and probably the most interesting article I've read over the last 
week or so since our show was, you know, this was a MSN article that said that um, immunity may not actually last that long. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, similar to like when you get a, a vaccine for the flu or when you get the flu, you can get the flu again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they're doing this by assessing the level of antibodies and they're, they're testing someone right after they've had it versus right. 30, 60, 90 days later. And, you know, we could be in that second cycle of people that had severe cases in February or March who are now in July and August who may actually not be immune anymore. Okay, Eric, so say, how deep can you take that? Because the way you've reported it feels like a typical news article, and I would think that kind of thing might get kind of overblown. How do we, how much do we know about the actual studies? And do you know the details of sample size and, and all that kind of, I mean, how, I mean, this is either a thing or it's not, right? And so can we talk about it at that level of detail? So the, the article referred to obviously a scientific study that was done out of three different universities and labs okay. where they had actually been measuring a cohort of people across time who had tested positive and then tested them at various time intervals. And we're looking at their antibody levels. Again, the advantage of a panel data structure. These are the same people that they're tracking over time. And it tested their antibodies, um, let's call it at T plus 90, T plus 60, T plus 30, et cetera. And just did a comparison of the level of antibodies. And and then this was a a medical report. This was published in a medical journal. I can look up the the actual one where the concern was that um, you may not have the level of immunity you think. Well, I'm not an immunologist, but the actual level of antibodies in your blood should go down as you've kind of exited out of an infection, right? I mean, as as I understand immunology, there's kind of a, the short-term, you know, response is to develop these antibodies that actually go after a virus. And then it's somehow stored in T cells or something like that long-term. That's what confers your immunity. But like, if you're not actually actively fighting the virus, the amount of antibodies in your bloodstream should go down. Yeah, so and would just, only come back if you were actually exposed again. Yeah. So the issue is, is it Eric's right that it goes down? They've noticed that. But Shane, also, it doesn't mean you're not immune. I'll just add fuel to the fire. Perhaps there is an example. They have, I mean, of course, it's n equal one of someone who was um, positive had some symptoms. They didn't sound classically COVID. They were a sore throat and, um, and a headache. Very, very, very mild. And a positive test three months later got COVID, which was much more and much more uh, typical version of a mild COVID with the cough and the fever. And the guy's like, how could I get it twice? And the guy, the, his doctor wrote up an article saying, I have someone who had it twice. As a statistician, I'd point he out- He was tested that, twice the first he was time test, around? He was tested once the first time around. Okay. And and was I've never got, tested I've got one negative. Solution. Right, we went all right. the same. All of us went the same place. That's right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, I, until be, I feel like about, we have be, be clear about where you're going, Shane. Well, just that I mean that these tests, all these tests have a false positive and false negative rates, yeah, and so exactly. it, he, it could have been an erroneous test the first time around, as opposed to him actually repeatedly getting corona. Right. Bingo. So uh, until until for me, I I mean all the immunology, all the virology, all the history suggests that that you should get some immunity the, the flu viruses that you're not immune to are different versions of the flu. They're not the one you had. Um, it mutates in their varieties. Um, so the real question is, is this mutating enough so that in a year it'll be, it'll be uh, something you're susceptible to. It's a terribly wide open question of which we don't know the answer and a bad answer will be a very bad thing. So I don't even yeah. want to think about it. <laughs> Speaking of mutations, I mentioned last week that the Monday episode of the daily last week was interesting because they talked about i think four things we've learned about the coronavirus and one of them was that viruses generally they, they do mutate of course that's just natural and also they mutate in two directions as a rule one is they become more contagious and second is they become less fatal and both of those are just evolutionary arguments essentially they're, they're evolutionary consequences essentially that um obviously the ones that will live the best are the ones that are more contagious and the ones that will have the greatest chance to, contain, to to affect other people will be those on hosts that don't die. So it's just the natural evolutionary process that viruses go in that direction. Now, how quickly and whether this one's going there yet are open questions, but these are known properties of viruses. And I didn't, I didn't realize that. So there's good basic argument for things going in that way on this, on this immunity question. Um, 
I missed a show a couple weeks ago, and I know y'all talked a little bit about herd immunity. I'd like to hear more from y'all because people do talk about this, and and I feel like it's gotten it's a little politicized. I'd rather us talk about it scientifically. I don't have anything to bring to this conversation other than the question, but I will say that I I have seen something, and I and I don't have I can't put my hands on it right now, but I've seen something talking about is twenty percent about the max we'll see in a population. Is there some kind of is there some kind of latent immunity that combined with 20% of people getting it kind of provides a ceiling. So for example, I know in the article that I read that they, they mentioned some studies of um, cruise ships where the conditions were kind of ideal for people getting this thing. And they noticed in these, you know, you know, finite samples essentially where you can actually, you can, you can test everybody. They only saw 20%. And there's another example like that. So I'm curious about that. And I'm curious about the herd immunity question more generally. Okay, so there's a couple of things here. The cruise ships, the prisons, uh, some small town, some ski town in Austria has used as an example where essentially every single person was exposed and they right. noticed that they, and, and everybody was tested. And they noticed that in no place did the actual percentage of positive tests, not, not symptomatic cases, that's always much lower. The okay. actual number of positive tests has never approached maximum. It's always hovered around between 40 and 60%. And so the claim is, and then this data is actually coupled with the observation widely, widely observed, that often you'll find every member of a household exposed and quite often a couple members not, get, not go positive, just simply. And you're noticing that with some of the Major League Baseball players whose families are fine, but the, uh, the, 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 one, the players has it, or et cetera. Okay. So the question is, how is that possible when there's incredible exposure? How does yeah. someone not end up being positive? And one of the arguments made is that there's a certain fraction, and it's not small, who really just aren't going to get it. And that's, that's observed a lot in diseases. Not only, argument, but, but aren't going to get it in the sense that they not only – they just won't even develop antibodies. No, they're just, they just don't, they don't, they're, they don't, they just they're already immune. Catch it. They're already immune to it. They just simply don't get it. And so I what mean, that, without it, having antibodies, without, so so that's somehow not through their own response. Right. So this is just a theory and, and one of the are, and it, it's, it's not a invalid or it's not, it's not learned um, in the abstract. And the idea is that, is that if uh, a, population is sufficiently exposed, maybe say 25%, that coupled with a natural immunity will give herd immunity. And that gives a lot of hope to places like New York City, where they believe at least 25% or around 25% has been exposed. And if the remain 50% are not going to get it to start with, it will be very hard for the virus to make substantive inroads into a place like New York. Okay. I, I was just going to add to Adi's point there, which is um, you know, if a lot of the data suggests, you know, if you look at the number of reported cases, I understand Shane's point's well taken. There may well be false positives there, but let's assume there could also be false negatives. Um, we see right now we've just crossed about the 1% mark of people that have tested positive. So one, it's over 3.3 million people in the United States. We have a population of 330 million, so 1%. A lot of people have recently suggested that the number could be 10 times as high. Yeah. So yeah. it could be as high as, let's say, 10% in the population. Unfortunately, what they're also saying relating to the herd immunity issue is that at the moment, that's nowhere near the number that's needed for herd immunity. Even if Adi's right that the upper bound is 50 or 60%, you're probably going to need maybe triple the number of people to have it, which it doesn't have to mean this way. That could easily mean a quarter of a million to 300,000 deaths within a one-year period. When I say within one year, from, let's say, March 1st of last year to the next March 1st. And I'll also say that also, you know, you're kind of using, as you would, like kind of the national totals here, but there's incredible heterogeneity. And like, I mean, herd immunity is kind of has to be sort of a local like concept, right? So it's presumably about yeah. like kind of local exposure and local prevalence. And there's, you know, I've, we're seeing in these different ways that certain parts of the U.S. like, you know, have, were exposed much larger earlier. So New York could have herd immunity, specifically New York you know, York now, City. New York City, but New York City specifically, but the rest of the U.S. obviously is, is, is not going to get it uh, widespread for some time. So I want to throw out some numbers for you guys from the sports world. I couldn't believe them. When I, but so the, the NBA announced today that some about was it five or six percent of the players tested positive. This is before they entered the bubble. The Major League Baseball tested at 11,500 people, of which I'm not sure how many of them are players, but I believe the roster is 60 per team. So something like 1,500 or approximately 10% of them were players. And 
uh, 1% tested positive, a little under 1% tested positive, all the people, it was only 80, so it's about 0.7 or so percent. But of those who's tested positive, almost all of them were players. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just was shocking. How is it? This is all intake, right? So this is before they got to, to, the, to the training camp. Um, why is it so differentially represented among players? So then I found out. So one of the things I it turns out the players have been hanging out in Florida, <laughs> which is, of course, where, where the spring training is. And they've been playing. Yeah, they've been out there playing and hanging out and doing and the staff, I'm sure, has been doing what most of us. Let's say training. Let's be a little more generous. Well, of course, training. No, but if you're a baseball player, let's be clear. Training is synonymous with playing, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. It's all right. So so they're training and they're playing. And actually, there was a a widely publicized sort of all pickup all star game that happened in Florida in a high school stadium where 20 all stars got together and played a game. Uh, And I just heard this from one of my. Yeah. So imagine that. First of all, it's incredible. Right. But uh so what happened is, is that undoubtedly um, being young and that's what seemed to be what's going on in Florida and I think in Texas and Arizona where other, these, the players are hanging out, they're out there. And what sh- struck me as, as shocking was how many, it's like 7 or 8% of the athletes. And also this pickup basketball game, that they're, the three-on-three stuff that they're doing. But Audie, I, also go back showed- to, I go back to again, um, why would that surprise you given we know we just said that we think it could be somewhere yep. around 10% of the population? These are um, active also, infections, not not had it, but active well, infections. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's a that's a very different number. Yeah. That's a very different number. But I think um, we also have to look at young people. While the as far as we know, this the the outcomes are not as bad. Although we don't know a lot yet. Back to Cade's earlier point about what we know, there could be long term health effects for right. younger people who get the virus. But ignoring right. that for just a second, younger people are more mobile. They're gonna do more things. They're going to see more people. They're going to be connected to more people. So it's not that surprising that the infection rate would be higher amongst them, maybe even much higher. No, yeah. I, I mean, I think young people are just in general more social and, and, and just have a larger network of people that they're kind of more regularly like kind of exposing themselves to. And I mean, professional athletes, I mean, you know, I, you know, I feel like the entourage, you know, the entourage for some of these big athletes probably exceeds like the indoor capacity limits in most states, right? So, yeah, I'm not surprised that they're actually, you know, it, it doesn't bode well. I mean, you know, this is less about celebrities and more just about young people. It doesn't bode well for campuses reopening. Well, I was about to go there, but, I, but on the other side, um, in some ways, the athletic programs do have better control over them. There is a little bit more of a parent-child relationship. It's not perfect by any means, um, but they in some ways have more control than um, you have over a 26-year-old multimillionaire. Now, that said, they're, they're forced right. into much closer proximity because they're living on campuses. Um, yeah, these campuses are not a particularly small bubble, right? I mean, these student-athletes will presumably be going back to dorms and stuff like that where there right? will be distancing, but, you know, yeah, no, how it's incredible. well that's it's enforced. A, absolutely. absolutely. But, you know, incredible. I, I think but a lot's going to depend. I want to say one last thing about the training yeah. thing. I just want to be – I mean, we're joking some, and, 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 we're, and we're just characterizing young people, and all oh, that's fine. But they do have to train. And, I mean, the tra- you you, you got to be sympathetic to these professional athletes. They are – professional athletes and they're about to start competing at the highest level how do you how do you do that i mean you're going to like lift concrete blocks in your garage or you're going to go to the gym where the rest of the you know at least some guys are working out and it has to be that those gyms aren't great environments for body has anything that you've seen changed your probabilities of forget starting because i think we're all believe they almost have to get started has anything changed about your belief about them completing the season yeah well i this i thought this was de- somewhat devastating i thought this actually the, the incredible widespread uh the fact that that aroldis chapman is uh is is on the il now with you may COVID. not even have seen uh, adi since maybe you were teaching russell westbrook russell westbrook uh announced he was, and all this is before they arrived there so he's not in the buzz and yet so but on the other hand so that makes me very lowers my probability on the other hand, the league seems a little bit like they expected this and they're expecting mm-hmm. quarantine to just sort of knock it out. So the CBT league, I, what I, I think I saw that after day seven of quarantine, the number of, uh, of tests was zero. Right. So so the and if you bring them in, they are quarantined. They if, and, and this is the, the big if and I think it's not an unreasonable if, if none of them have adverse events. I mean, that's where things are going to get bad. Once Russell Westbrook is in the hospital or Freddie Freeman is out for the year with permanent lung damage, 
that's going to demonstrate de- completely forget it. Then every major sport is toast. But well, right. It, and it, I mean, this entire forecasting exercise is very difficult in part because mm-hmm. we don't really have They've, we've gotten very little indication or guidelines um, about what, what it would take to close these things back right. down. Like, mm-hmm. is it something where like, you know, something like Freddie free, you know, somebody like a, a, a high profile athlete with like permanent lung damage or something like that. I can imagine a singular event like that being enough to shut things back down. Or will it be something where we just need a certain number of proportion of players on each team? And I can understand, I'm not sure leagues are particularly interested in pre-specifying those conditions <laughs> ahead of time, right? I think they, thought about it. They, they have to have thought about contingency. They have, like, they must, they're not, I mean, and I understand kind of politically, if nothing else, why they wouldn't make those public, but it it's frustrating because, you know, if, if, if we actually knew the kind of conditions that would lead to a shutdown. We would make it a easier forecasting well, exercise. Tell me this. Do you think some sports are more robust than other sports to losing players? Is it yes. safe to say that, well, yeah. that basketball is more yes. fragile than baseball? Oh my God. Yes. Because basketball is so dependent. So Russell Westbrook's a critical piece of the team, right? So if the he more, can't come back, well, how can they be? I mean, that's, and, that's, and, so that's and, and also the play, the fact that they're launching right into the playoffs, right? I right. mean, I mean like the games. at least baseball's got, I mean, to the extent that any game in baseball is particularly consequential this year, they do at least have 60 less consequential ones right. where they can kind that's of feel true. this out. That's true. So, Adi, does it make you feel, the guys, does it make you feel that um, since you can get this population potentially down to zero, that um, now we just have to figure out how to do it for 330 million people? Like, what, what, what's the news? The news is no deaths in New York. The news no is, deaths in New York. Adi and says I, I, University I, of Pennsylvania doesn't have a single COVID patient in ICU. I right. Mean, so, no, no, my incredible. point is, is that it, therefore, it can be done. Yeah. So now the question is, you just have to figure out how to scale it and do it fast enough before, because right now, you know, if mobility starts increasing, if you let everybody start moving back around the country again, trust me, New York's not going to be at zero. No, I so mean, Rob, is- Rob Manford for, uh, for, for Helsar. For U.S. president, U.S. You know, so I'll throw out a great. So there's, I watched a CDC presentation on the virus. They do them fairly regular, and one of their experts had had described. I wish I can, um, I wish I can remember his name, but he decided there's this. This is a hills and valleys. The way we have to look at it is hills and valleys, and that we would like to stay in the valley as long as possible. And we'd like the hill to, to, to not grow into a mountain and descend and to send back down to the valley as quickly as possible. But this is staying with us for a long time and that we just need to keep it low as possible for as long as possible. And, and then when it does emerge and it's going to emerge again, we keep it, we get it back down quickly. The really question is when you're in the valley, what kind of life can you lead? Well, um, on that sober note, uh, we are going to take a little break and come back and talk more broadly about sports. Come back and join us after the break their music their stories this is garth brooks pop that beer right in the mic and when it made the record kind of laughed and giggled and goes no that's actually supposed to be in there their official channels sirius xm brings you closer to legendary artists like pearl jam garth brooks the grateful dead and more for a full list of all official artist channels go to SiriusXM.com or listen anytime on your phone and sirius xm connected you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition coming to you via Zoom. Got the whole team here. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and Cade Massey. We're doing these one-hour versions while coronavirus has us locked down, but we're going to do them weekly. Occasional guests thrown in for a longer show. This time, normal show, just rolling out of talking about coronavirus more generally and talking more specifically about sports in this half hour gentlemen always curious what has caught your eye in the world of sports over the last week well i'll start with one that was kind of interesting i was watching a lot of golf this weekend you know getting geared up for the return of tiger woods this week by the way at the memorial i see you're wearing red i thought that might be what it was all about that is true i i it wasn't in honor of tiger but i you know there it goes and um i was just thinking I've, I've spoken about his ability to close many, many times. But just to give you an idea, Justin Thomas, I'm sure if you follow golf at all, you know who he is, top five player in the world, won 12 times in the round the world, won a, has won a major. Um, he was up three strokes with three holes to play. Um, he ended up losing the tournament in uh, extra holes. Um, just to give you guys an idea, Tiger has never lost a tournament where he's been up three shots in the final round. 
and he's 55 and four going into the final round leading. And um, it turns out the overall win percentage going into the final round leading is somewhere around 55 to 60 percent. Wow. And so, and again, Tiger's 55 and four. So I don't mean just up three hole. He was up three with three to play. Right. And so um, it just reminded me again yeah. of how, you know, this is just one of the, in my view, least appreciated facets of his game, which is when he's leading, he's going to win. Uh, one, one thing, that kind of baseline rate of like, you know, 55% for leading going into the final round among all other players, they may be leading by less. You know, Tiger in his day was not – I mean, part of the reason he made it easier to keep his lead on Sundays right. is he was up by like right. 12 strokes. That's right. It's not um, all leads so, equal. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of like, you know, I'd like to kind of – it would be cool to break that down just sort of by like – by uh, amount of lead. Yeah. But I'm sure Tiger yeah. dominates no matter what. Hey, one detail on that. Morikawa won that, right? Hasn't he? Is he just on a, one of the most blistering plays streaks that we've seen in a while? Well, he's been playing extraordinarily well. It's only his second win, but the guy's 21 years old. Um, the other one he won, I don't believe, was a stroke play event. I think it was a match play event. Um, but this was his first stroke play event win. Um, but I'm going to tell you, it was the greatest, I think I'm right about this, first extra hole I've ever seen in the history of every golf tournament I've ever watched. So they were playing the par four, okay. par four 18th again for the second time. You know, they played it during the final round. Justin Thomas had a 55 footer for birdie, which had about seven feet of break and he made the putt. <laughs> Morikawa. Well, by the way, give us a probability on that. Excellent probability. I think they had listed it somewhere around two or three percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So you drop fifty balls down, you'd make one. Now remember, to win the tournament, to tie, to to go on in the tournament, Morikawa had a thirty-three footer from just off the green, which he hit in. No, sent it to extra to send it to a to another extra hole. Wow. Which. I, I've never seen anything like that. I think they said right. yeah. 90 feet of putt was hit in those two putts yeah, right. for it to continue on. Wow, that's good fun. Real sportsman. Look at that. Look at that happening right in front of us. It was, awesome. it was a lot of fun. And um, again, can you, uh, give me, yeah. can you give me some sense of how hard it is to sink a putt as a function of distance, does it go? Is it like go down much, much run rapidly? Like, like in, like in uh, field goal kicks, once you get 65 yards, it's forget it. The limits of your, yeah. but I wouldn't guess it goes down in any, it goes down a little slower than You're that. You're asking so that, by how like linear almost it is. Yeah. Right? So I know that. So how hard is it from eight feet? How hard is it from 20? How hard is it from 40? Well, I'm not sure. It's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer, but I remember okay. we had a guest on the show that told us the following fact. Like if you go, if you take the best putter in the world statistically, and you take an average golfer in the world, average pro golfer in the world statistically, it's like the equivalent of moving them like three feet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like going from eight to 11 feet changes the odds so dramatically. Like it would be like moving from the top ranked professional golfer to like the 80th ranked professional golfer. But presumably that does, there is like a diminishing, I can't imagine that kind of proceeding linearly, yeah, right? No, I mean, no, probability's got to right. drop so pretty quickly mind- down to close to zero. I had in mind that eight foot was about a 50-50 mark. That feels low for pros, but I think it might actually be close to legit. Um, but what I'm suggesting but, is that I would guess that 30 feet and 60 feet are, are close together, both real small, but not yeah, right. proportionally that's smaller. Right, that's right, yeah. And, and I, my, my impression is that made long putts is almost all luck. Right. And yeah. there's, I mean, Jordan Spieth that in his heyday was the master of these 20-foot putts, and you, and you got to ask how much of that – it surely well, I've got scary. it right here. So let me um, so let me just say from here's a here's a recent set of statistics from three feet. Your, pro, your probability is ninety six percent. Hold on, who's who's probability average player or pro player? Pro player. Okay. Hmm. You're at ninety six percent. Then by the time Cade's right, by the time you get to eight feet, you're not at fifty percent. Cade it was forty eight percent, but uh, we'll give that right. one to you. Um, by the time you get to twenty feet, you're down to fifteen percent. Okay. And so I, it, it, this, this chart stops after 20 feet, but just to give you an idea, mm. let's say from three feet to eight feet, it halves from eight feet to 13 feet, which is another five feet. It doesn't quite half. 
from 13 to 18, it definitely doesn't have. Yeah. So it's the, the rate of decline is slowing quickly after, yeah. you know, after that. It probably decays in something like the logarithm of the distance, I would guess. That, it, that appears to fit pretty well. Yeah. All right. Way to fit us some curves real time mentally, Adi. Good job. Um, what else in the real in the land of real sports, guys? Before we start whinging about um, the hypothetical seasons we're all looking forward to, any other real sports that caught your eye recently? Well, the other thing that caught my eye was, you know, yesterday was I think one of the first practices of the Lakers, a team we all think has a certainly a chance to win the title. You know, they're going to be battling the Clippers, and I saw that uh, Rajon Rondo broke his thumb. Now you might say, well, what's the really big deal? Well, the problem is is that they have two major point guards on their roster, Avery Bradley, who already said, I'm not coming back for this right. uh, COVID thing. And now Rondo, who's out six to eight weeks minimum, which means um, they're po- the person that's going to be playing point guard is this guy Caruso on the team. Um, I actually love his game, tough, feisty kind of guy. But I mean, that's your point guard now. And their mm-hmm. backup point guards are going to be J.R. Smith and Dion Waiters. And I'm thinking... This, I mean, LeBron can play the point, but right, I mean, again, right. now you're asking LeBron to play the point, do the rebounding, yeah, score the basket. It's like, it's like the old Magic. The, what was it a game or a series where Magic's playing all five positions? He's dropping in some sky hooks in place of Kareem. Well, that oh, was the that was the first title he won yeah. in 1980. Um, he had something like 42 points, 17 assists, and 15 rebounds in Game Seven where Kareem was injured. Okay. But that was a game, and we're asking uh, whoever steps in for Rondo to do this for not even just a series. Well, of break. course, six to eight weeks. Though. Yeah, I was about to ask, remind me the timing. What what round he would be back by the second round? Maybe the second or maybe the third round. But again, then I also started to look at this article, which was very interesting. Apparently, Rajon Rondo is the worst player in the NBA. Really? Yeah, I mean, in the sense of he had the worst net rating of any player in the NBA of all 400 players they looked at. He had the worst net rating of minus 6.8. Now, of course, the article always points out, what about playoff Rondo? You know, last season, you know, he always seems to turn it on. So I was just starting to wonder, maybe this is a good thing for the Lakers. I mean, I don't want to say he has the worst, but I mean, he has the worst. He had the Mm -hmm. worst rating. And even in conjunction with LeBron, of all the players that played with LeBron, he has the worst net rating. Hmm. Oh, wow. I read a sobering article from The Athletic a couple days ago about college football players um, possibly just bailing on the season. The more mm-hmm. it becomes shortened or delayed or uncertain, the top draft picks, some of them, they say, will increasingly just opt out. You know, this is a, a, a accelerating the trend towards the draft picks not playing, the, pro- the high prospects not playing bowls, for example, um, to work on their draft prep to preserve themselves from injury that kind of thing that might happen at the beginning of the season so this was supposedly agents mm-hmm. who had reporting conversations with players it, traditionally the agents sign their players as soon as the season's over and then the agents take over kind of their they fund their training they get them to the right training facility they all prep for the draft and it's this kind of process that's become kind of ritualized in recent years they're talking about for some players that's going to start now in September instead of January it's going to start in September and they're worried that it will compromise the college football season even more and this of course is just kind of self-interest it's kind of natural economics of it this and so it's this interesting development that we hadn't really talked about and it's it would be kind of a natural extension of what we've seen some players do in recent years in college football Okay, let me ask you a question. How do you think they would be able to pick a college football? Let's, I think it was the Big Ten, but correct me if I'm wrong, that said they're only playing intra-conference games, right? Yeah. Well, the Big Ten and now the Pac-12, and the ACC is expected to do this. Okay, so mm-hmm. let, let's, just, let's just play out the, you know, you know I'm Mr. Doomsday. I love Doomsday when it comes to college football. Let's imagine, <laughs> let's imagine all the Big Five conferences have a dominant team and we have no ability to judge crossly because they don't play each other. Yeah, right. Didn't they do it for like a hundred years this way where they had a, like all these big teams that like never played no, each other and then they had to pick a champion. There's, there's a little bit That's of right. data to, there's a little bit of data for them sometimes. Okay. They play each other. Okay. But uh, don't set it up like it's an impossible task. It may be impossible to do well, but you know, you can definitely do it. That was, that was Bill Connolly's response to our um, speculation a few weeks ago on the probability of crowning a champ. He's like, this is college football. They'll always crown some champ, no matter how dubious. There'll be some, some <laughs> right. way to get it done. So, Eric, you're just saying it's going to be tough to, to, to figure out the best teams. 
because there's not this overlap in play, essentially. Yeah, that's all. But you're right. Well, I, but, yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I do this I, all the time. In this scenario, will we somehow get all the way through the seat? Like, let's say in this scenario, all the conferences manage to get through their season. They all have like, you know, it's it's things are going okay somehow in terms of COVID. Why couldn't we just have like a little playoff of the conference champs? I know it could be, it could accelerate that, right? It could. It's say, you mm-hmm. know, that's where they think if we go to eight team playoff, that's everybody's yep. default setup is that the five power conference ch- champs go straight in. So it, I mean, God, no. That could be, that could be a fun silver lining out of all this, it could right? Be. There's going to be, there's no telling what permutations come out of this. I mean, the two conferences supposedly, the Big 12 and the SEC are resisting this no conference thing and they are going to do everything they can to play football. And so we could have some real talk about heterogeneity. We have real heterogeneity across the football. Wait, they're they're resisting they're resisting this idea that you would only do within conference. Yeah. Yeah. Can I you know it's you you asked the question uh Kate about what it will do to football if the top, you know, the guys who are ready to get drafted or already proven themselves don't want to play, but there's an, the flip side of it is those who are coming up are going to be far more desperate Absolutely. to play. Than, than anything because they need the proving grounds. This That's is right. how they make themselves n- a name. A hundred percent. And and the 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 you know and the, the NFL teams obviously want to look at as many players as possible. And some players, I mean, everybody seems to believe that eligibility will be extended. So if they want to stay around for another year, they'll be able to, and that'll be in the interest of some players for sure. But at the very top, I don't know what it might be. The prospects who might be taken in the first round, at least, Trevor have pretty strong incentive to. To bail, yeah. It's, I mean, what what advantage do they have for playing this compromise season, and they could just shift. And mm-hmm. I'm not advocating, but I'm I'm kind of lamenting. But I think it's a reality, and it's a reality I hadn't heard talked about much. I want yeah. just maybe trying to blend the first half of our show we did COVID and sports and related to college football. Um, there are a lot of universities that have said they're not going to have all of their students come back. So mm-hmm. are the are there going to be just exemptions made for certain D1 sports versus others, and someone's going to decide which D1 sports those are. And well, there's it two wouldn't be same. like the colleges to somehow have slightly different rules for their athletes versus the rest of their students. No, this, this would be unprecedented. This isn't a good time to do that. I don't know if I even agree. I understand the point, and it is clever, of course, but if you can ensure the safety, if you could, so much depends on these big revenue sports. I mean, football and basketball fund all the other sports. I mean, so for example, look at what happened with Stanford. Stanford, which is one of the most moneyed institutions in higher education, announced that they're canceling 11 of their 36 varsity sports. They're, the Olympic sports, you know, fencing and, and some things like that. But it's 11. 11 out of 36 is something like 240 athletes with decades of alumni. It's really, it's really something. Mm-hmm. And that's not just in response to COVID, it's in response to difficult funding environment in general. But you might even say, look, it's partly, it has to be at least partly reflective of how difficult the, how difficult the Pac-12 has had keeping pace with the Big Ten and the SEC. The Pac-12 has an outdated television contract there. They've got a weird conference that makes some weird investments. They don't get as much as individual schools as the other school, at the, as the other conferences do. And you start seeing the consequence of not having, not being in a great conference, much less not having football at all. There are real consequences here. We have, we have varsity athletes in Olympic sports who aren't going to be able to play because Stanford's finances don't quite come together. And that's a well-funded organization. You know, I just want to toss out one thing about college finances. They're not as obvious as you think they are, that Stanford is an incredibly wealthy school, but enormous amount of their money is tied up in real estate investments and endowments, which have incredible amount of regulations. University of Pennsylvania, like Stanford, like many universities, are deeply tied to revenue. That's how they make their operations work. Six percent. I happen to know the numbers. Uh, I know that for Penn. Mm-hmm. Only 6% of Penn's operating budget every year comes from the endowment, 6%. Right. The other 94% comes from the paying customer and from philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So this is, this could, is why Stanford could, could really, it feels it, and, and, and why these contracts are so right. important. But I'm going to, you know, just, I mean, it's a good point, and it's clever, Shane, but I do think that, uh, and it, that, that college sports, the sports aspect are good for the community. Um, and that they do get, they do, they do um, obtain some special dispensation to be on campus. Um, and instead of dividing it up, that's that's the way I feel about about the sports. In, you know, professional sports as well. In the very beginning, like how come an NBA player gets a test when there's so few of them? And my answer is because they play in the NBA. <laughs> 
I they don't know what to tell you. Entertain the rest of us. Well, yeah, there's there's, <laughs> there, uh, there's an interesting thing that developed at the University of Texas today. They uh, you might have seen that Texas was one of the places where a number of athletes, in response to the Black Lives Matter and the the Floyd killing, in the middle of all that, some athletes got together and and made some demands on the university in order to continue to play. Most of them were football players, but not all. And they were strong demands. They were taking down some monuments and renaming some buildings. And they even questioned using the Eyes of Texas fight song. And, and they've persisted with this and the university has taken it seriously. And the university announced today, this afternoon, that they're making pretty big changes. They're gonna hold on to the Eyes of Texas, but they are renaming a building. They are taking down some statues. They're investing a lot of money into recruiting black students and faculty. They renamed the field. The field has been named Joe Jamel, who's this lawyer in Houston who gives a lot of money to Texas, the Joe Jamel field. The Jamel family agreed to rename it in honor of Earl Campbell and Ricky Williams, the two Heisman Trophy winners. So it's a, the Campbell Williams field. So a lot of progress announced today, which is very cool. Now, observe one interesting fact though. When do you think, what's the relation between the timing of that work getting done and that announcement and when the NCAA will allow teams to start having mandatory workouts again and players interacting with the coaches. So you have some of the top players on Texas football team saying, we're not going to play. We're not going to, we're not going to suit up until you do these things. And they said that a month ago, a month later, the university announces all these changes. Guess when the NCAA's first day of mandatory workouts allowable is the first day coaches can interact with players, essentially the first day that athletes can suit up. Guess what day that is? Yeah. Today. Today. This, this goes to the leverage these guys have, and I think it speaks, again, to the importance of sports. It's, it's the, and even college football, the impact. These guys had some leverage, and I, you got to kind of, for many reasons, you got to respect that they actually took advantage of it. But it's, you know, that's, I don't think it's too cynical to say it's not a coincidence that that university got on their horse, got some things done, and announced it today in time for the team to start the practices. Yeah, one of the things I know Adi brought up you know, Adi, you've always, I know you've done a study of, you know, different star level recruits, five star, four star, three. I have, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm very interested to see who gets affected more by, let's call it, the, either the longer layoff or the inability to possibly practice and train as much. Because, you know, you know the old expression, smarter people work harder. Well, maybe better players train harder. And so you could make the opposite, which is that they don't need it as much, but it's not, I mean, there's no theorem that says which way it's going to go. So I'm very interested to see, do you get a compression of performance or do you get a widening of performance? And I can and, come up with an argument in both directions. And the extra level of this is, as we were kind of discussing earlier, is that, you know, if players kind of like end up being basically able, like can opt out of this particular season, are, you know, how is that going to cut across, you know, the, the, the sort of star rating? You can imagine these five-star athletes, again, they're the ones that maybe are guaranteed to be drafted no matter what. They're, are they going to be more or less likely to sit out for a season? Eric, in, in what sport, where do you think you're going to most cleanly observe that? You, you say you can argue it both ways. It's a really interesting question. It's obviously confounded with lots of other stuff. Where, let's talk about where we might observe which way that's going to go. What's the best test of it? Since we can't run the experiment of what we're the sports we're going to college watch. level, or are we talking about the pro level? Either one. Wow. Um, I'm I, just because it's coming up. I'm I'm thinking we're going to see something in the NBA. I think um, we're going to see um, the top performers maybe not perform as well as you might have expected. I think you will see the lower end performers perform better than you would expect. So I, I'm picking the NBA as the sport where I think you will see it the most. It's, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you. You know way more sports than I do just in no, general, but yes, this is no the, the, one, the one, the one thing I'll kind of point out is that the NBA to a certain extent, this COVID, I mean, the NBA's regular season is mostly about just making sure your players are still rested and fresh for the playoffs. I mean, the the good players sit out as much as about during the regular season, about as much as the teams can, you know, pull that off, right, without getting pushed Without back. disappointing their fans, right? You know, and so you've kind of got like to a certain, you know, I, I, would, I would sort of say the NBA of all things, you know, those players are used to kind of missing, I mean, maybe not giant blocks of time like this, but are used are used to kind of rolling into the playoffs, maybe not not nearly as 
played out as, as, as say in baseball. Well, and, no, and, note, game. and note that they don't need to be rested now. So you don't have yeah. to back off of your, your best players as much as you have in the past. Well, well, another, I'm not saying this is true, but imagine one large aspect of the variance between worse and better players. Imagine it happens to be some, pl- I'm making something up, of course, some people have better fitness level, oxygenation level in their blood, whatever it is. And therefore this gives them an advantage and that advantage gets compressed over a shorter period of time. They can't it has to be, it has to have something to do with age, right? We all know that it takes a lot longer to get back in shape when you're, when you're older than it did when you were younger. So that could be another thing. Yeah. So NBA tends to have, older players as well mm-hmm. yeah and i mean again it's not like it, it would be a tough thing to to study because you know you don't get to run the other the other the other part of the experiment arm of the experiment but again are we going to see more injuries than we would that's, otherwise that's a big concern absolutely you know i mean i mean i think that's i mean that has a i, I will certainly say that kind of injury thing has i think maximal impact in basketball versus these other sports i mean football can have depending if it's quarterback or something like that it can also have a huge impact but obviously um Injuries have had substantial impacts on the uh, NBA playoffs. It's one of the, you know, really only sources of uncertainty there. And well, so, you know, so, if, so if, if this, yet another factor, this is like turning yeah. the NBA playoffs into this great mystery, yeah. which is so unusual. And now I'm all intrigued. And now I'm really hoping that we make it to that point so we can see. Yeah. All but you still, think, you still think, I'll just pick, I'll take the following three teams and you can take the field. I'll take the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Bucks. Okay, you think there's that much uncertainty? I'll take those three, and you can have all the rest. I I think I'd still take those three teams, but I'd be less likely to take them this year as opposed to, you know, whatever the top three teams you would name in any other year, I guess. Yeah, and I'm curious what the markets are saying. Like, what's the probability? And do we believe the markets to get this right? How do the markets look this year versus past years? And I'm inclined to say, okay, stack me up the market probabilities, and I'll take the field um, because I think they probably don't fully account for all the sources of uncertainty we just come through. And it's probably much less, um, much less deterministic than it has been in the past. And maybe they, maybe they haven't caught up with that yet. What are the odds right now? Are, are those three teams uh, summing up to 50% of the probability based on the implied Vegas odds? We, we should probably be able to calculate that. We'll have to go get that. We're, as, especially as we get closer to the season, we'll have to, we'll have to get that and, have these, and take some real over-unders. How about that for a change, fellas? Have some real over-unders. Right. You know, it's funny. I, I, last week we talked about the over-under on, uh, on, 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 the, on the number of Super Bowl wins by uh, Pat Mahomes. I took it to my class, and they, were, they, were, they love the over. They love the over? Well, I can tell you that um, uh, one of our listeners, regular listeners inside the building there in Kansas City wants the over as well. He told me yeah. that if you got, if you want some action. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 will, I will say that these are kids that you asked before you taught them about statistical and probabilistic reasoning, right? Of, of course. So. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. Great to spend it with you. Listeners, thank you very much. From Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Cade Massey, and our producer, Maddie Datz. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us next week. 